Uh, we've been talking about this big story of God. And um, in some ways, uh, from what we talked about last week, we could almost call it the story of good. And that's something that uh, not a lot of people remember, is that this story of God begins with a lot of good. It began with only good. And similar to that, um, it, it's important for you to realize in your story that God created you for good. Sometimes we forget that good is the way that God intended for us to live, that good is the way that we were created. And in this big story of God, what we've been talking about over the last few weeks is though, um, though we were created for good, um, there was this uh, picture in the garden that we have of goodness, but then um, something terrible happened. Separation, something terrible happened when I spell, I think is what it is. Anyway, I think that's right. Um, though we were created for oneness with God, and oneness with each other, and oneness with creation, and a oneness, wholeness within ourselves, um, the Bible refers to it as the fall. Um, there is a, a separation that has taken place. Now, when you, when you consider this, every great story has a, a point of crisis. Every great story kind of interjects, usually early on in the story, some type of a problem. And the, what really keeps you hooked is what's going to happen with this problem. And sometimes things get worse. But you just kind of, your brain is trained to long for who is going to be the hero that changes everything, that can restore everything to good. Well, this, this story of God, what we read in the Bible, is really just that. And it is, um, God is the hero, and though we uh, became separated from the very beginning, from the moment of that separation, God came pursuing, where are you? And it wasn't chasing them down to get them, uh, to like get them back. It was to win them back. Um, I, that reckless love song, pull the lyrics back out, look over that. He, he leaves the 99. He's going out and he's saying, where are you? If you have wandered off, you are someone that I want to bring back into oneness. Jacob was a friend of mine in the South Bay. He came to our church um, after a friend invited him. There's not a whole lot of people that make me feel small, but standing next to Jacob, I did. He um, played uh, uh, D1 football, great guy, huge guy, tender heart. And um, over time, um, he got to this point where he realized that he wanted more of Jesus in his life. He gave his life to Christ. I got to baptize him. Um, we had this crane that helped me. No, um, got to baptize him. So we were singing this reckless love song, and he, we, we got to the 99 part, and he didn't understand that, so he Googled it that afternoon. And uh, he, later on, was talking to me and a few others, and he's like, I Googled that 99, and it's Jesus going out looking for the one. I was that one. It was something in him that realized God is looking for him and to restore him. And so it's a beautiful picture. I don't want us to overlook how, how persistent God is in desiring to restore us to oneness. And the rest of the Bible, as we've been saying, is God's relentless pursuit, his reckless love to reunite with his people. Um, we, uh, we introduced a word last week 
or was it two weeks ago? I don't remember. Covenants. And it was a reminder to us that God always makes provision for our disobedience. He knew that we would not live a perfect life, but he um, began to establish covenants with his people. And uh, some of these were uh, individual, some of them were national, but in in these covenants that he established, it was his way of saying, I want to make a way possible, even though you have been separated by the choices that you have made, I want to make a way possible for you to enjoy the blessings of oneness. Um. So we will, uh, I want us to kind of pick up here in the, the New Testament. Jonathan, what does this stand for here? <laughs> Jesus, okay, yeah. The f- <laughs> so apparently the, the uh, four weeks ago when we started this series and I pulled the red band out and it came down, uh, Jonathan leaned over at, uh, was it to Pam? He's like, I, I think I know what this one is. <laughs> That's Jesus. So, so yes, we're going to, um, we're going to pick up here. In fact, we're just going to let Jonathan take it from here. Um, but in this, in this time, and, and think of this as kind of uh, Genesis 1 and 2, Genesis 3, and then we have the rest of what is known as the Old Testament or the Old Covenant. And they are all stories of God pursuing his people to restore them to oneness or they're stories of mankind's fascination with otherness, with separation, with thinking that they have things under control. And so right after, well, it, it begins with um, the uh, Pentateuch, the first five books of the Bible. And this is what takes place here is where God begins to establish those covenants. He begins to uh, say to this people of Israel, Um, I want to live in oneness with you, and through you, I want to bring oneness to the entire world. So he reveals his plans to his people in these first five chapters of the Bible. And then it moves on, roughly speaking, into a period of judges. Now, when you think of judges and judgment, you might think of just like a furrowed brow, and someone is really upset, and you you are just awaiting sentencing. Judges in the Bible were these people that God appointed, these men and women that God said, hey, my my people have drifted away or just completely turned away, and I want to use you to bring them back into oneness. So it was not, judges weren't there to condemn. They were there, again, to help people make their way back. And, And then we begin to see, and this is pretty much the rest of the Old Testament here, Um, God establishes kings, and these kings of this nation are there. And what we see when we read about these kings is that in some ways, um, it was kind of the um, speed of the leader, speed of the team, kind of the speed of the king, the speed of the nation, however you want to word it. It was if the leader pursued oneness with God, usually the nation followed. And so what we have are accounts of national oneness and national separation. We have an account of um, not just individuals, but how an entire people, God's people, suffered through times of otherness. Now, there's a part of the Old Testament, and, and it's kind of, if you opened up your Bible and was flipping through the pages, it's kind of this section here, 
called the prophets. But they actually served during the kings, the time of kings. So it's not chronologically accurate. But what these prophets did, they were vivid truth tellers. And they were warning people of the consequences of otherness. And through some pretty radical displays um, and examples and object lessons, they would encourage people to come back into oneness. And then there's other books of the Bible in here. Um, one of, uh, probably one of my favorite are, the, are some poetry books. And what I love about books of poetry when it comes to this story of God is um, there, there are these beautiful written passages of people who um, it didn't matter if they were really struggling in life or if life was going well, they had the freedom to express how they felt. And in that, they began to restore oneness um, with their creator. Um, you have other books in there like uh, wisdom books. Proverbs talks about how oneness with God is really how it, it lives out in our practical day-to-day -day lives. This is what it looks like for us. You have Ecclesiastes that was written by um, one of the kings, Solomon. And uh, spoiler alert, that book of the Bible is just all about, hey, anytime you live in separation and otherness, all is vanity. It's just empty. I tried it, and it didn't work. And then you have Song of Solomon that is a beautiful picture of oneness in marriage. So all of these, these books of the Bible here have to do with, with God leading people, trying to give them opportunity after opportunity to return to him. And then, so this is where we're going to spend the next couple of minutes, and I'm going to talk fast. Um, we cross over into the New Testament, or you could call it the New Covenant. And in this time where Jesus came, Emmanuel, God with us, that's how much he loved us, that's how much he wanted oneness with us, that he would send his son to be with us. He lives a sinless life. And um, we're going to focus on just this one real small portion of when he was on the cross. And I can't help but think of when Jesus was, was placed on that cross, it was almost like he was suspended between oneness and otherness. He was hanging there in the balance. And we're going to see a little bit more about that. Um, I want to read a passage from Matthew 27. This is, um, there's other books, uh, gospel books that talk about this. Um, and this was a portion of the time when Jesus is on the cross. And it says, from noon until three in the afternoon, darkness came over all the land. And about the ninth hour, which is three in the afternoon, Jesus cried out with a loud voice saying, Eli, Eli, lama sabachthani, which uh, that is uh, to say, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Or in other words, God, why have you abandoned me in this time? Now, remember that sin separates. That's the really, that's the downside of sin. It's not that you messed up. It's not that you've, you know, oh, great, way to disappoint everyone. No, it, the real problem is that we find ourselves separated from oneness and the good life that God has created for us. So with this in mind, 
this ache of separation, Jesus cries out, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? He is saying, I am separated. I feel separated from you, and this is miserable. So why would he be feeling separated? Isaiah 53, about, I don't know how many, hundreds of years before, Isaiah writes this, We all, like sheep, have gone astray. Each of us has turned to our own way. In other words, we have all chosen a life of separation to one degree or another. And then it goes on to say, And the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. He took on himself all the reasons why we live a separated life. And it's widely believed that the, uh, the most excruciating pain that Jesus felt on the cross was the ache of separation, the ache of abandonment. Jesus, fully God and fully man. Not like 50% God, 50% man, and when he wanted to, he could kind of turn up the God and, you know, <laughs> dial down a little bit the man. 100% God, but 100% man. And he feels this pain and this ache of separation. But I think it's interesting that he says, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? I think that personal pronoun says a whole lot. It's kind of like he's saying, Father God, I don't understand all that's going on, but I do know this, and that is that you are still God. You are still my God. I, I, this, is, this is difficult. I, w I wish there was another way, but I want you to know that I'm, I'm still with you. I still believe you are who you say you are. And I think it's a great picture for us um, to acknowledge the fact that we get in those seasons where we're like, my God, my God, why have you allowed something like this? Why, why do I feel this way right now? But it's also a way to acknowledge, but God, you are still God. I'm still looking to you in the midst of this. And then Jesus, um, he voiced what he felt and experienced um, when he said, my God, my God, why um, have you forsaken me? But those words were not original to him. Um, little side note, it was shortly after 9-11. I was hanging out with a group of people from church, and we were watching this video of the president. Uh, George Bush is addressing the nation, and in the middle of his address, he says, um, Yea, though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil. And one of the college students in this group leaned over to somebody else, and I heard him go, dude, the president just quoted Coolio. So, <laughs> all right, Gangsta's Paradise, you don't need to know the song. But anyway, um, we were like, no, actually, he's, he's quoting the Bible. Um, <laughs> so, yeah. So Jesus, when he says, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? He's quoting from Psalm 22, a psalm of David. And it's a psalm that David wrote at a time of feeling separated. Um, it, it was written um, at a time that um, he felt this deep ache. And the gospel accounts, uh, some of the other gospel accounts, go on to say that um, Jesus' last words were, it is finished. 
In other words, it's complete. Um, God has done what God wanted to do. And the end of Psalm 22 says this, they will proclaim his righteousness, declaring to a people yet unborn, he has done it. Now, if you want to know uh, in detail what was going to take place, David wrote this over here about what took place here, not fully comprehending all that was going to happen, but inspired to write this. Um, Take some time this afternoon to read Psalm 22. Uh, depending on how the Giants game goes, you may want to read Psalm 22, okay? Um, read 23, but yes, if they win, read Psalm 23. Good point. Um, no, but it gives um, a lot of details about what was taking place. Now, we don't know, but what maybe Jesus not only quoted Psalm 22:1 from the cross, but maybe he quoted that, that whole chapter of Psalms. But you can see as you read it why it would be appropriate. And if anyone heard him saying those words, they would very quickly make that connect. Um, back to Matthew 27. So he has um, said, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And behold, the curtain of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom, and the earth shook and the rocks were split. There's um, historical accounts outside of the Bible that talk about um, a an earthquake that took place. Um, was it forty? Yeah, forty years before the temple was destroyed, which would have put this earthquake right at the time of this account with Christ. And this curtain is made of several layers. This is not just kind of oh, okay, well you get the blacked out stuff, you know, to make the room a little darker. Um, it was woven together and was four inches thick. It was about as thick as your hand is wide. And we first hear about this um, in the Pentateuch. And the veil is talked about in the tabernacle. And tabernacle just means dwelling. And as they wandered in the wilderness, the Israelites had this place, um, special place reserved where um, the presence of God dwelled in this tabernacle. And then um, as Solomon became king and completed the temple, then it was uh, the symbolic presence of God was moved into that, um, into the Holy of Holies. And so this is what it says in Exodus. Make a curtain of blue, purple, and scarlet yarn and finely twisted linen with cherubim woven into it by a skilled worker. Hang it with gold hooks on four posts of acacia wood overlaid with gold and standing on four silver bases. Hang the curtain from the clasps and place the Ark of the Covenant, um, which contained symbolically the presence of God. Um, place the Ark of the Covenant law behind the curtain. The curtain will separate the holy place from the most holy place. So the purpose of the veil was actually to separate. Why, if God is pursuing oneness, would he have them construct something that separates them? Again, always making provisions for their disobedience. Um, the high priest on the Day of Atonement, one time a year, would offer a sacrifice on behalf of himself and all of the people 
the blood would be sprinkled on this veil. And because of that sacrifice, he was able to enter into the presence of God. Um, so the purpose of the veil was to keep people out of the Holy of Holies. The, the purpose of the veil was to say, um, uh, are you really ready to fly first class with me? Are you ready for this life that I have for you? And it says, and behold, the curtain of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom. At the time of, of Christ crying out, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? In that ninth hour, around three o'clock, he says, it is finished. God has done what God wanted to do. There's a tearing of the veil from top to bottom. Now, by itself, this is a fascinating event, but when we view it in light of this big story, it takes on even richer meaning. The curtain that once separated has now been torn so that everyone can have access, so that everyone can um, have a way of oneness. It was a supernatural act that symbolized the opening of access to God. Again, God always made provision for disobedience. Hebrews 10. Therefore, brothers and sisters, since we have confidence to enter the most holy place by the blood of Jesus, by a new and living way open for us through the curtain, that is, his body, and since we have a great priest over the house of God, let us draw near to God with a sincere heart and with the full assurance that faith brings, having our hearts sprinkled to cleanse us from a guilty conscience and having our bodies washed with pure water. No more hiding. It's a return to oneness. In 1 Timothy, Paul writes, For there is one God and one mediator between God and mankind, the man Christ Jesus, who gave himself as a ransom for all people. So all this took place at 3 in the afternoon. Is that really a big deal? Why three in the afternoon? The devout Jew would make a trek to the temple two times a day. There were two main sacrifices that were offered at the temple, one in the morning and one in the evening, one at 9 a.m. and one roughly at 3 p.m. in the ninth hour. This was their regular routine. Whatever they were doing, they would stop. And they would make their way to the temple for this time of worship. For centuries, whenever possible, this sacrifice was to be carried out in the temple. So in other words, um, no temple, no sacrifice. That was one of the reasons why they were so um, heartbroken when the, when the temple had been destroyed and they could come back and rebuild it. That meant that they could once again reestablish this relationship with God. Psalm 141 is a psalm that, uh, that David wrote most likely when he was um, on the run either from Saul or Absalom. So in other words, this is a really difficult time. He is cut off from the place of worship, from the tabernacle, from, that, from being able to be present for those, for those daily sacrifices. And he says this in Psalm 141 too, 
May my prayer be set before you like incense. May the lifting up of my hands be like the evening sacrifice. And what David is saying is, I'm, I'm, I know I'm not there at that place that I'm supposed to be at right now. Um, but what I, I, I can't offer you a sacrificial lamb, but what I offer you right now is myself. I surrender all of me to you. Paul writes in Romans 12, I urge you to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and pleasing to God. Um, this is what I want to invite you to do this week. I want you to set an alarm on your phone for 3 o'clock every day. Now, if 3 o'clock just really would not work for you, pick a time that's the same time every day this week, and when that alarm goes off, find a space where you can just say, God, I'm, I'm yours. And just let that be a time where you come back to him and offer yourself back in that way. Now, in case you're not putting these two together, the veil was torn just as the lamb was being slain. The lamb was being slain as our lamb was slain about the ninth hour. That's where he comes and he meets us. Hebrews 4.16, let us then approach God's throne of grace with confidence so that we may receive mercy and find grace to help us in our time of need. I want to encourage you as we prepare to take communion, I want you to approach this table with confidence. Not that you've had difficulty walking and you're thinking, okay, I think I can, I think I can make it all the way up there this week. Um, I want you to approach this with confidence. Um, I want you to approach with confidence that God wants you to take part in this special meal. Now, if you're like me, sometimes before I approach this table, I'm thinking, man, I am, the week I've had, I don't, I don't know if I should be doing this. And God says he still wants us to approach him with confidence. That verse in Hebrews does not say, let us approach God's throne of grace with confidence because we finally got it right and we figured things out and we took care of all of our own needs. That's not what it says. This verse in Hebrews says, you may approach God's throne of grace with confidence so that you may receive mercy and find grace to help in your time of need. We can approach, not because of our goodness, but because of the sacrifice of Christ. So would you approach with that confidence for communion? Let me pray. And then as you're ready, you can make your way up here. Father, thank you for making a way when there was no other way. Thank you for doing for us what we longed for and what we could try to do, but we would be unable to do. And Jesus, as we look at these symbols, the bread of your body and the cup representing your blood shed for us, making a way for us to enter back into oneness. We celebrate that. 
and we do. We step forward in confidence because we are confident that your sacrifice was the one once and for all sacrifice. And all of our goodness or not goodness, we walk to you and we ask for your mercy and for your help in our time of need. Amen.